It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. It will be a gold medal and a world record. I think that's probably the scariest thing for every athlete at that level is to walk out and the risk I think is you're contending with failure. I call it the what if monster. You step out onto that pool deck and you say, what if I fall start? Or what if I crash? Or what if I miscount? Or what if I do this? What if I do that? And that, that what if monster can just eat you to death. Former Navy Lieutenant Brad Snyder was blinded by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan and then went on to win a rack of Paralympic gold and silver medals in swimming in London and Rio de Janeiro. He then won gold in the paratriathlon in Tokyo. I'm former astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Brad Snyder graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 2006, where he was captain of the swim team. He then became an explosive ordnance disposal officer. Many of you have seen the movie The Hurt Locker. Brad lived it. While serving in Afghanistan in 2011, he stepped on an improvised explosive device while trying to help victims of another IED and lost the vision in both of his eyes. His journey to the Paralympics is amazing. We caught up with him as he was preparing for the 2021 Tokyo Games. What if you could get energy, immunity, and strength in one sip? Well, now you can. Zoa is the fastest growing energy drink on the market. Created by Dwayne The Rock Johnson to fuel risk takers and world changers like you. Zoa is packed with superfoods like Kamu Kamu and Acerola Cherries that provide multiple B vitamins and 100% vitamin C. Plus, Zoa has just the right kick of caffeine from green tea and green coffee in five amazing flavors. Look for it on Amazon, at your favorite retailer, or order online at zoaenergy.com. That's Z-O-A energy.com. Brad, it's such an honor to have you as our guest on our first episode of The Adrenaline Zone. As we get started um, talking about the amazing path that you've been on, would like to give our listeners a little bit of some background about you and choosing to go into the military and become an explosive ordnance disposal officer is certainly a risky decision. And so could you talk us through how that, that became your career in the military? I'd like to just first off say I'm honored to be on the podcast with you guys. Really excited about this conversation. And I wish I had something really noble to say about why I took that initial risk, but I really think it boils down to young and dumb. I wanted to serve for better reasons than I wanted to be an EOD officer. I wanted to serve because I was steeped in service growing up. Both of my grandparents on my mom's side were in the Navy. My grandfather was a torpedo man out of an aircraft called the TBF Avenger during the Pacific War actually served in the Battle of Midway. Typical uh, naval aviator, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> when you're two or three or four years old, you don't really you don't really understand what World War II was, or you don't understand what the Navy is. Or you just understand that my grandfather's this really awesome guy. I love him very much. And the more I got to know him over the years, the more I wanted to be like him and follow in his footsteps. 
by the time that I had entered high school, my grandfather passed away when I was 11, but I had already had that in my mind. It wasn't even really a decision that I made. It's just like, I knew that I wanted to serve likely in the Navy at some point. I got to visit the Naval Academy when I was a sophomore and just fell in love with the institution. I fell in love with everything. I went home and when I was there, I got a poster of the Blue Angels. I put a poster of the Blue Angels on my doorway and I had this little checklist of all the things you have to do to go to the Naval Academy. I had that checklist on my wall and just like line for line went down the whole thing and was just over the moon, if you'll pardon my pun, about being able to be accepted to the Naval Academy in December of 2001. It was right after the towers had come down that I, I got the, the invitation to join the Navy and it was a really incredible moment. So that's why I wanted to serve. From day one at the Naval Academy, they start asking you, what do you want to service select? What do you want to do in the Navy? So I had never put any thought towards it. So I was wandering around that decision for a number of years. I actually wanted to be a SEAL for three of those. Being a swimmer, I love the water. And I had asked early on, who of the Navy gets to, to scuba dive? I want to be a diver. And they said, nobody from the academy goes into the diving community anymore. You can either be a SEAL or an EOD officer. I didn't know what an EOD officer was. So I was like, okay, I'll be a SEAL. It's such a cool community that tackles really intense problems across a wide gamut of areas. You need a wide gamut of skill sets to tackle these challenges. And it's a really remarkable group of people that do it. I made my decision junior year and never looked back. Wow, that's quite a story. And we're going to hear to a little bit more about that during the interview. But the other half of the story we're going to hear about today is your swimming experiences. So what got you into swimming? And did you start at the Navy? The Naval Academy? Did you start at the Naval Academy? Or did you were you a swimmer from a young age? I was a swimmer from a young age. I don't want to say I was a troublemaker, but I was probably an annoying kid because I had a lot of energy and I was always constantly trying to get into things. And if I didn't have anything to get into, I'd find my way into trouble. And so when I was 11 years old, my dad said, let's get your, uh, let's vector that energy to something productive. Took me down to the local pool and allowed me to try out for the swim team. Of course, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to be awesome at swimming. I am a really good swimmer. And then I showed up at the pool and found out that I was by far the worst swimmer. Like competitive swimming is this really elegant, whole other thing. It's not like swimming in the ocean. It was a completely different discipline, broken down into these four different beautiful strokes for those who do them well. And I was not one of those. I again, fell in love with this new sort of art form, this new sport. I did it competitively all the way through high school and then into college. It's probably a big reason that the Naval Academy accepted me. I was a good swimmer. I wasn't an Olympic caliber swimmer at that point, but I was a good swimmer. Yeah, good enough to swim Division One, and good enough to go to the Naval Academy and lead us to beat Army all four years I was there. Oh, had to get that one in, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, slide it on in. <laughs> so, you know, you talked a little bit about this dichotomy of do I become a SEAL or do I become an EOD officer? And SEALs get a lot of, have a big reputation for how challenging their training is, but the EOD training is no cakewalk either, either from a mental or a physical perspective. Can you walk us through what you had to go through just to become an EOD officer? Yeah, I think you, you nailed it, sir. We pride ourselves on our ability to what we call integrate with basically anybody. So if you're going to put people on the top of a mountain to do some sort of you know military objective, we should be able to go with them. And if you're going to go down to the bottom of the ocean, we should be able to go with them as well. So we do a lot of that sort of integratability, doing free-for-all training and that sort of thing. But the real nuts and bolts of the EOD pipeline is how to mitigate explosive hazards. And that's a kind of broad mission set. An explosive hazard could take many forms. We start with dudded ordnance. We start with how do you identify different types of ordnance? You have bombs, you have projectiles, you have rockets, you have grenades, you have landmines. How do you identify the difference between those different things? What are the different fusing mechanisms? How do you take those things apart safely? Then you get into this whole 
the new generation of of explosive hazards, the IED, the improvised explosive device, which is essentially like really any main charge you could make up with any kind of initiation device that you could. We have to learn basically how to get into the imagination of our adversary and figure out how are they going to imagine how to make a bomb. So that, that particular challenge is a big component of what we train to do. And that takes about 13 months down in Florida, Panhandle of Florida, not too far away from where you probably did flight training in Pensacola. We do nine months of explosive specific training, two months of specific dive training, and then we go on to our mobile units. And then once you're at a mobile unit, that's when you do a lot of that integrating training. How do you jump out of an aircraft? How do you how do you align your skill sets with actual true mission objectives that align with different integrating groups, whether that's SEALs, Special Forces, Army Rangers, conventional army forces on you know on the grounds of Iraq and, and Afghanistan, that sort of thing. Brad, it's it's funny listening to you talk. You have such a dangerous profession that you and risky profession that you chose to pursue that the jumping out of the airplane part is not even the most riskiest part of the whole endeavor. No, that's the fun <laughs> part. Yeah, yeah, that's the really fun part. And then all the work starts once you hit the ground. <laughs> so how does that all unfold? You hit the ground, you there's some devices in the area that you have to go diffuse. How do you approach it? What's going through your head? I'm sure you've got a lot of adrenaline during the process. And then how does it feel when you've successfully diffused one and saved lives, basically? So to tackle it from a general perspective first and then get into the tactics, generally speaking, our approach to a device will depend on the context. So I I did two different deployments. I I did one to Iraq and one to Afghanistan, and they were fundamentally different, not only based on the geographic and cultural context, but the mission set. My mission set in Iraq was to support conventional forces. And the way I, the metaphor I use is like that of a fireman. So we would have a shop, we would have a bunch of trucks and we have a bunch of gear. And if anybody in the area found something on, let's say the freeway, they find a suspected device on the freeway, they would establish a safe area and we would respond to that. Again, the, the mission set's responsive. And one of the delineators of that mission set is you have a lot of time. You have an entity that's holding security. You have essentially all day. And we use all the time that we can because time allows you the space to think the problem through, use a robot first, maybe as a remote option to get a look at the device. Sir, you mentioned the hurt locker, that kind of quintessential image of a person in a bomb suit. That's like our maybe our second or third type of safety measure of if we can't get a good look at it with the robot. Maybe we'll drive the truck up there and maybe if, because we had those uh, really fancy, we call them MRAPs, the mine resistant armor protected vehicles that are like, they look like transformers kind of. You can take a little look out the, the peephole and see if you can see the device from the protection of the vehicle. If you can't see the device, then you get the bomb suit out. And so it's like this kind of a tiered set of risk mitigation techniques to protect yourself as much as possible and like utilizing the time that you have. That's funny there because... EOD has a reputation, especially amongst the modern generation who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have a reputation of taking our time. Everyone else gets really annoyed because if you think about it, the uh, the army infantry is holding the security cordon. So they're out there for, you know, sometimes three, four, eight hours while we're looking at a plastic bag on the side of the road. And they're just wondering, what are they doing over there? (laughs) For for us, it's very stressful for the whole eight hours because we're trying not to get blown up, but everyone else is very, very bored. The context might change though. So my deployment to Afghanistan, I was embedded with a SEAL team doing what we call assault support. So we're actually going out on missions, looking for bad guys, going into people's houses and that sort of thing. And you don't have the same set of resources. You only have what you you carry on your body. So I don't have a truck. I don't have a robot. I don't have a bomb suit. Really all I have are, are, are my hands, a knife, some rope in my bag and some explosive charges. The constraints on what I'm dealing with, I, I can't do as much. I don't have nearly as much time. 
And so the, the whole approach changes dramatically. I'm also far more exposed at, at all times. And, and that's actually how I ended up getting hurt, but we'll talk about it later. Our approach is very different from depending on the context, depending on the mission set, so on and so forth. But you're always basically trying to risk mitigate no, no matter how you can. And you have this tiered approach. We call it threat assessment. I'm not sure if the same paradigm exists elsewhere, but you're always wondering what are all the different things that are posing me a threat? The Afghanistan example is I'm a part of an assault force. We have enemy fighters that might be posing a threat to us. We have IEDs that are in the ground. We're very tired, so maybe we're a threat to ourselves because we're not really thinking straight. So you like always have a running list of what are all these different threats to me in this particular moment in time, and then you prioritize them. What's the most important threat for me to address? What kind of time do I have? What kind of risk mitigation tools do I have? And you go through the list like that. And anytime I was ever on a mission, you're doing that constantly. And I'm sure, I wonder if it's the same as true in space. Like you're probably always wondering about what are the different things that might go wrong and have I mitigated all those adequately? Brad, your real journey, speaking of getting blown up uh, or hurt, began on that fateful day when you stepped on an IED in Afghanistan. So tell us what happened there. How did that all unfold? I was on an assault support mission, so we were uh, actually on a foot patrol between two different villages in an area called the Panjway Valley of Afghanistan. And it's a very fertile valley, and a lot, not a lot of people know this, and I certainly didn't until I got there, but they grow a lot of grapes there, and there's rows and rows of these grape fields, and they're really difficult to hike around. So we were hiking through these grape fields in the Panjway Valley, and up at the front of our patrol, two of our Afghan partner forces, the Afghan good guys, stepped on an IED, um, about a 40-pound charge that really badly, in effect, actually killed both of those guys. We didn't know that at the time, but the two guys were really badly hurt. And our our tactic at the time, because we, we adopted this principle that if you found one IED, you likely found others because the insurgents at that time were utilizing IEDs very heavily. And there was a common tactic of putting them, putting a lot in a concentrated area, knowing that they'd probably hurt more people due to the concentration of those improvised landmines. So we, the tactic was that myself and the other EOD technician would pull out our metal detectors and clear the ground for the medics to get to the casualties. And the, everyone else is just instructed to stay exactly where you are. The last thing you want to do is start wandering around in a minefield and start in, in, incurring more and more casualties. Myself and the other EOD technician both found a medic and we were both trying to clear space for those medics to do their work on the casualties and then eventually get those casualties to a place where we could land a Black Hawk helicopter to take them to the hospital. Just as we had predicted, there were multiple IEDs all in that location and me getting, trying to get, uh, I was trying to actually get a gurney, a piece of something we could pick up the second casualty with. I was running that gurney back up to the front of the patrol when I stepped on another IED that was about a meter away from the first blast site. Thankfully, no one was in my immediate vicinity, so I was the only one hurt in my blast. And thankfully, it was configured in a strange way where it didn't blow up underneath me. It blew up in front of me, which essentially saved my life. Um, if it had blown up any closer to me, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you today. And in many respects, I was lucky to walk away from that incident with the only damage being to that of my face. In the ensuing couple weeks, the doctors that are spread across Kandahar, Longstuhl Air Force Base, Germany, and in Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, did a remarkable job patching me together and doing everything they could to salvage my vision. But unfortunately, the damage was too extensive. And that's really the only lasting effect of that pretty uh, traumatic instance back in September of 2011. 
Brad, before um, I ask you a little bit more about the recovery process, I just would like to comment that I am so moved by the fact that you willingly, with a metal detector in an area where there are known to be more bombs, walk walk through to help rescue other people. That's true hero stuff. This, this is stuff of myths and legends. And I just am, I just, I'm so moved by that. So thank you for sharing your story. And I just, wow, I just have no words really. Uh, but um, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I've heard, as you guys all have, I've heard a number of people speak and testify to their experiences in co- combat. And I think when you're in that environment, it doesn't feel heroic and it certainly doesn't feel like anything extraordinary. It just feels like we're in this really terrible situation and somebody has to do something. And I don't want, I know that in that situation, I'm uniquely capable of uh, mitigating that hazard. Like I looked to the seal to to my next to me and he's really good at things that I'm not. He's really good at kicking down doors. He's really good at engaging the enemy. He's really good at a lot of things that I'm not. But in this particular situation, I have the subject matter expertise. I, it's my duty. and, And I wouldn't want I wouldn't want him stumbling up there, stamping on an IED. I like, it's my duty. So I really appreciate you saying that. But I think a lot of people in those situations, it doesn't feel heroic. It doesn't feel extraordinary. It feels like this needs to be done. Otherwise, the, the situation's going to get worse. And I'll tell you, it's interesting you dial in on that being heroic or whatever. But I felt immensely guilty afterward because I live by this like my worth to the platoon is my ability to utilize my expertise to protect them, to get our mission done and, you know, carry out our duty. And I essentially failed that mission. And not only did I not protect them, but I actually made their lives worse for a little while, actually for the remainder of that deployment, because they were worried about me. I've reconciled that guilt now, but it's so interesting to pull different things out of that experience. For a long time, I felt really guilty about messing up that day and as opposed to doing anything extraordinary or or heroic. As a reminder, this episode of The Adrenaline Zone is brought to you by Zoa Energy. Zoa is designed to support healthy immunity while providing a boost of energy and hydration. And you can always find out more on zoaenergy.com. Being a part of a high-performing team in, in a mission into space, I totally get that. But yet, outside looking in, I so I understand what you're talking about. But yet, the choice to do that in the first place was very heroic and very courageous. And then this horrible thing happened, and you went into an extremely challenging recovery process. And it's clear that your attitude is really, I think, what got you through, but it still had to be incredibly difficult, both mentally and physically. Can you tell us a little bit about how you navigated that? To transition from what we were just talking about, I do think the guilt actually motivated me for a while. I felt like I needed to redeem myself to some extent. I felt this sort of, I really did think that I died. I, you know, immediately I blew through this in what I was just talking, but when immediately following the blast, I had this odd sensation of, it felt as though time had stopped for me for a while, for, for a really long time, actually. It wasn't more than you know a couple minutes in reality. Immediately following the blast, my platoon started looking for me and shouting at me and that sort of thing. But I wasn't perceiving any of that. I was real. My bell was rung. So for me, I was just laying there thinking about the life that I had lived and really had convinced myself that I was dead. And I was I was content with the life that I had lived and I was ready to move on. And I was looking forward to seeing my grandpa and all that stuff. And, but then I, I came back to life 
And I, I just, I, I think it's really hard to describe in words what that feels like, uh, to really feel and accept your death, but then come back to life. And for me, uh, going into the recovery process, I really had this feeling of, man, I am so lucky to still be alive. And I feel like uh, because all of these, you know, new moments felt like bonus moments. I felt I really got to, I really got to take advantage of this. I really got to live, live life to the fullest because I, you know, I, th this just feels like uh, something I wasn't supposed to have. And that kind of motivated me at the beginning. Uh, but then also there was a, a social dynamic where for me inside, I was feeling this immense feeling of gratitude to still be alive. For everybody else looking at me, they were really devastated to see one, like uh, my stitches and all that stuff was probably not pleasant to look at. But two, they're hearing the doctors say, we're not going to be able to save his vision. And they're like beat up about it. And my mom is devastated. My son's going to be blind. My sister is, oh my gosh, Brad's going to be blind. I think everybody was like really worried about what's he going to do and what's his life going to be like? And, you know, how is he going to be who he used to be? And they were really worried about that. I don't think that I necessarily was. I certainly got more worried about that later on, years down the road. But at that moment, I was just so elated to be alive. I was really struck by how devastated they all were. And I, I felt like that also motivated me to like really try what to do whatever I could to say, no, no look, don't worry. I'm going to be fine. I can do all of this. I can. There's Braille and there's guide dogs. Hey, how exciting is it going to be that I'm going to get a guide dog? And give me that iPad that talks and I'll figure that out. And let me get with this lady who's got the, the blind cane and she's going to teach me how to walk down the hallway. I just started grabbing onto every sort of tool that I could to start to say, all right, how do blind people do this? I'm not the only blind guy. I'm, I'm not going to be the last blind guy. There's lots of them and they've all figured out how to do great things. Stevie Wonder's blind and he's an amazing guy and he's done amazing things. I'm going to do a, I'm going to, I'm going to become an amazing guy doing amazing things. And I just need to figure out what those tools and tactics are. What a story of turning a negative into a positive. And that's something that I've always believed in, but you've taken that to a whole new level. Uh, so let's talk about that. You get home and you're now living a completely new reality. What was the journey that actually got you to the Olympics? How did you learn about the Warrior Games? How did it progress from there? It's funny when you're in Walter Reed, you're worried about all sorts of different things. I'm in the bed. I'm all drugged up as well. So I'm really having a hard time wrapping my head around very basic concepts. Uh, but I remember pretty early on, there was uh, a representative from the Warrior Games Navy team who had a, ch uh, a clipboard in her hand and she was saying, what sports are you interested in? Would you be willing to like, would you be interested in throwing a shot put? There was a, a fellow named Rich Cardillo at the Association for Blind Athletes, and he's a retired army colonel. And he was very persistent over the phone. Hey, I, I'd really like to get you into this sports. It's a great opportunity. I've got some funds here. The Association of Blind Athletes is behind you. And I said, yeah, that's great. But let me figure out this and that first and whatever. He kept calling and he kept saying, you, do you realize how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? He found a local coach where I was doing rehab in Augusta, Georgia. And that coach would come by the hospital, pick me up and take me to the local YMCA. And we would swim for a swim practice, which was really great for me because I felt very trapped in the hospital. Being able to get out a little bit and go to the normal world and go back to something that I was very comfortable with was a really welcome opportunity. Once you're going to practice, well, you might as well go to a meet. I went to a meet, I went to the Warrior Games, and I got really hooked into that. We're at the Olympic Training Center, and, and people keep saying, well, do you think you might be able to go to the Paralympics? And, and I got the idea, and I got really excited about it. And one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden, I was at the Paralympic Trials in Bismarck, North Dakota, and I was able to swim a couple races that landed me 
not only like, am I looking to make the team, but I was actually ranked number one in two different races and thought, this is really a remarkable sort of story arc. How incredible would it be if I could go to the Paralympics? And how incredible on top of that would it be if I actually won a race? And I thought that would be, well, you can't write a better sports story than that. So how do you manage in the pool to swim without being able to see the swim lines and things like that, or know when the wall is there? How does that work? I was really lucky in that I was able to lean on years and years of able-bodied swimming. When I dove in, it felt very comfortable. I felt like I knew what I was doing. But you're right. After two or three laps, you eat it into the lane line one time and remind yourself, oh, I, I can't see. That, that's actually one of the fun things about swimming. Like when I kind of get into a clip and I'm moving really well, I actually forget that I can't see. I, I feel really good. I feel like I'm moving fast. But what I've done is I've altered my, we call it a recovery in swimming. My arm recovery is where I take my hand back to the front of my head and begin my pull again. So on my arm recovery, I drag my fingertips just very slightly on the surface of the water. You probably wouldn't even notice it if you're watching the race on YouTube or whatever, but I'm dragging my fingertips. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for the lane line and I swing a broad arc with my arm a little bit away from my body. The idea there is if I catch the lane line on the right with my hand, it's certainly better than doing it with my shoulder. And if I catch it with my hand, I try to what I call bend back to the left. I, I'm just trying to bend back into the, the center of the pool. And it's unfortunately, it's not like a firm thing. It's very much an art, like just do it over and over again. And when I was getting ready for the London games, I was crashing all the time. I was getting bloody on my elbows, bloody on my hands. It really took me till Rio to smooth that out and feel like I was confidently navigating my way. But my strategy in London was just, if I just haul it, hopefully, even if I crash, hopefully I'll still win. That was the strategy. And that's certainly not a very sustainable strategy. In all seriousness, the Olympics is an entirely different level of competition. It involves a different kind of risk. You're representing your country. There's a lot of attention. How did you approach that sort of different type of risk in that kind of competition? I think you nailed it. And I think that's probably the scariest thing for every athlete at that level is to walk out. And the risk, I think, is you're contending with failure. I call it the what if monster. You step out onto that pool deck and you say, what if I false start? Or what if I crash? Or what if I miscount? Or what if I do this? What if I do that? And that that what if monster can just eat you to death. It does go back to that threat assessment sort of framework. You have to have a framework that you are going to lean on when you go to execute. And for me, it was, I, I know that I've done the training and I've rehearsed this a hundred times and I've practiced and I'm physically strong and I've eaten the right stuff and I've gotten the right sleep. I've done all the right preparation. And also you can lean on this, the stoic idea of control what you can control and let go of what you can't. Many of the what ifs you can't control. It's fruitless or inefficient for you to worry about them. So when I step out for the blocks, I just align myself on my plan. Once the big moment occurs, my my rally cry to myself, I'm just saying right behind the block is just execute, just execute. Don't worry about all that other stuff, the context, the spectators, the excitement, the scoreboard, the the, the big moment. Just allow all that stuff to fade away and just execute. And that's how I prepare and uh, navigate the sort of risk of failure in that moment. And honestly, you tell yourself beforehand too, if you fail, it doesn't really matter. You'll get back up and do it again. I think uh, the fear of failure is really amplified by this idea of you only get one shot. And I think anybody who's been through the loop a couple of times knows that there's not just one shot. There's always a different way to redefine the aim and redefine the goal set and, and tackle some new challenges. And so if you fail, you just pick it up again and, and try, new, try it anew. So after standing at the pool, thinking all those things, executing 
expertly, you're on the podium. And so how does it feel standing on the podium, knowing that you've won Olympic gold for your country? That must be an amazing feeling. It is an amazing feeling, but it's what's neat about it is that I think growing up watching the Olympics and watching the movie Prefontaine or watching my Olympic heroes, I felt like I was just a part of something really big. I was a small part of something really big. And it was very humbling to think of the flag and to be in an arena full of 18,000 people who were cel- sort of celebrating the anthem and celebrating our flag being raised and celebrating a sense of togetherness. And as I stood at attention listening to the anthem play, I was thinking about all the people who had played a part in me getting into that moment and thinking about being on the battlefield and my team. Like you just said, it was it's extraordinary and, and heroic to grab that metal detector and start sweeping your way down to a, a person who just got blown up, knowing that there's likely more IEDs in the ground. My buddy Adam did exactly that to me, and he cleared to me very fast. And he looked at one of his best friends who had just taken a 40-pound blast to the face, and he picked me up, dusted me off, and told me, you're going to be fine. Get on the helicopter. As I'm standing at attention, thinking about all these people, my mom who got that really awful call in the morning, and my siblings who were there every step of the way to help me and my mom navigate that difficult situation, all those people in all the different hospitals I was a part of, you know, I, in that recovery process, I just belabor the point to, to show you that it, I felt like I was a mechanism of this broad community to come together over a cool moment and really celebrate our sense of community represented by the flag and the anthem. You've mentioned a, a couple times about your threat assessment framework, and it's interesting that everything that you've done so far in your life has been high risk, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. And so it seems like you're using the threat assessment framework as a way to deal with that. Are there other techniques and tools that you use to handle stress and pressure and these risky situations that you find yourself in? Yes. I think the lesson learned over the last two years, and I wouldn't say that I've gotten to a I haven't conquered this challenge, but I'm I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. And I think it's balance. I don't know if the two of you will echo this sentiment from your backgrounds in sort of high performance teams, but I think high performance teams lean on high performance individuals and high performance individuals tend to be workaholics and they tend to want to take on a lot. And they tend to probably subscribe to lofty aspirational visions of wanting to, you know, enact social change and ignite Paralympic sparks and all that sort of stuff, which means they probably spread themselves too thin or they're working too hard or they're working too often or they're existing in that stress environment too long. I think I have found that I tend to do that. I tend to take on a lot. I tend to really want to keep expanding the challenges that I'm facing. And I've learned that, especially at 37, I've learned that I need to start incorporating more balance, more recovery time, more space for myself, more space for me and my wife. And I think this notion of balance is is really important. Now, that said, once you get yourself into this sort of priority challenge where you've got a lot of really important things going on, it's not always easy to solve things without just working the additional hours. So that's where I say I'm currently navigating that challenge. I'm trying to get better at it. I haven't quite got there, um, but I think the balance is important. So Brad, uh, you're taking a break from school to talk with us. Tell us what you're doing in between competitive swimming and speaking to people about your experience. You just nailed it. I'm, I'm in school. I had the opportunity after Rio to go back to the Naval Academy and do some adjunct teaching as a leadership professor. And I loved it. I love the Naval Academy. I think the midshipmen at the Naval Academy are a remarkable group of people. I really wanted to do it full time. But at the time, I only had just an undergraduate degree. I didn't have a master's or a PhD. 
and have since decided to go get both so that I could apply for a full-time sort of tenure track position back at the Naval Academy in the leadership department. So I've enrolled in a program at Princeton. My focus is security policy, but my real interest is in civil military relations, specifically at the sociological level. What is the relationship we have with our military and and why is that important? I've found that research has been really fun. Well, I can only think, Brad, that more people hearing stories like yours can only solidify the American people's belief uh, in their military. You have written a book entitled Fire in My Eyes, An American Warrior's Journey from Being Blinded on the Battlefield to Gold Medal Victory. Can you tell us what it was like to actually write about your experience? It was a really interesting process. Uh, For me, it was very cathartic. I found First, the motivation behind the book was, as I was going through the hospital, there were a number of instances where this was especially potent in Walter Reed when I was pretty freshly hurt. My mom was frequently in the room and people from the military would come and visit. I remember a a couple people from a team that was likely going to replace the team that I was with wanted to ask very specific questions about the things that I was seeing on the ground and the tactics and what happened and what went wrong, a a post-mission debrief sort of thing. And whether it was because I couldn't see her or I was a little doped up, I was pretty forthcoming about what I had been doing in Afghanistan. And while I was there, I would call my mom and I would say, she would say, what do you do there? So when I'm telling these stories to other military folks in the hospital, she was flabbergasted. And I realized frequently for a lot of us, we probably have no idea what's going on. So the, the motivation behind the book was, let me tell my mom the story of what happened that year and what I was doing. And, and I wanted to write it in a way that my mom would understand. And for me to go back into memories about being in the hospital and being disoriented and picking up those pieces and trying to distill some level of meaning, it was really valuable for me to understand what my journey was and to buttress my motivations for what I was doing in the Paralympic space or back at the Naval Academy. I think just the practice of writing is a really valuable tool to help you understand some of your own experiences and and really the meaning that might be behind them. No, Brad, we're running out of time, but we do have one final question we'd like to ask. Do you have any personal rituals that you do before you swim competitively or or any particular way that you relax that you've set up over the years? When I was young, I would listen to like really energetic rock music. So I would kind of get up and ready for any race or whatever. Now that I've gotten older, I like to tackle each new challenge from a state of like peace and calm. So I, I do try to take that moment, make some space for myself to meditate sort of center and really focus on my breathing, look inward and then open up and be open to the next experience or the next challenge. Well, Brad, we want to thank you for your incredible service to our country. And thanks for a really uplifting and frankly, very moving discussion today. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the Adrenaline Zone today. If you want to know more about Brad, read his book, Fire in My Eyes.